Watching sports with my son Joshua is a, an interesting endeavor. He is uh, incredibly competitive, and he got that from his mom. No, he didn't. He got that from me, no doubt about it. But I'm only competitive when a team that I care about is involved. Joshua is competitive no matter what team it is, what sport it is. Like, we're cruising through the different channels of ESPN. We hit the Ocho, and it's like Cornhole Championship. And Joshua's like, I'm going for the team in red. Who are you going for, Dad? I, I don't... I don't care. Like, this is cornhole. Like, this holds no bearing on my life, and I don't, I don't care who wins this game. What do you mean you don't care who wins this game? I'm going for the team in red. Or we'll just put on a random baseball game. I'm going for the, uh, the Rockies. Is that because they're winning 5 nothing? No, it's because I like the Rockies. Okay, well, last week you liked the other team that was playing the Rockies. Well, tonight I'm going for the Rockies. See, Joshua understands when he's watching a sports game that for him, it's do or die. He's going to decide which team that he's going to follow and he's going to cheer for. And to his credit, most of the time, he sticks with that team. He understands that when he watches sports, for him, just to be a neutral observer is not an option. He's not going to sit back and just watch the game to enjoy the game itself. He's going to watch the game and he's going to always pick a side. One way, as funny as this can be to watch Joshua participate this way and, and engage with sports this way, he understands what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate to us in what we looked at last week, but more specifically and more directly in the passage that we're going to be in together tonight. See, the Apostle Paul understands and understood and was trying to get us to understand and was trying to get his readers to understand that when it comes to our relationship with God, there's no neutral in that. There's no, well, I'm just a casual observer of Christianity. I'm just a casual observer of God, not aligning myself with him or against him. I'm just neutral. What the Apostle Paul is going to show you tonight in, in this text, in the scriptures that we're going to look at tonight is you are either for God or you are directly against him. That there is no neutral standing with him. And as you think about that and you think about your own life and you say, well, how do I know where I stand in that, where I fall in that? The answer is going to be in what does your life look like? Because you can be here tonight and you can profess all you want to profess to me that I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus. But if you're living a life outside of this time where you are living totally uh, apart from what God wants you to do, then I'm going to suggest that your life bears out a different reality than what your words are professing. And I'm also going to suggest that you know that deep down inside. And so what Paul is driving at here again is there's no neutral and the way that you live is going to reveal what side of this equation that you fall on. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19 is where we're going to be tonight. Paul says this, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have now become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members to slaves, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." 
Paul opens with a refrain that I hope is familiar to you by now if you've read Romans and spent time in Romans, if you've been with us in this identity series from the beginning when he says, should we continue to sin? This is how Romans chapter six opens, right? That grace may abound. And what does Paul say there? He says, no, of course not. And he asks a similar question here that's based on the way that our text last week ended. When Paul said last week, for sin will have no dominion, no mastery, no authority over your life since you are not under the law which condemns you, but you are under grace. Grace that transforms you. Grace that turns your life around. Grace that forgives your sins. But then Paul is quick to follow that up and he says, so then since we are under grace and not under the law, should we continue to sin? And once again, he says, absolutely not, by no means. And he explains it further by then creating this scenario wherein we see that there's really only two options for a person in this life. You are either a slave of God or you are a slave of sin. There is no free agency in this life. There's no in-between. And if you're here tonight and you're thinking, well, that's great for you and all, but I believe that there is. I mean, I hope to show you through the, the word of God that you're wrong, but I also know that you may be so prideful that you're just going to reject God's word and not care about it tonight either. My prayer is that the spirit wrecks you, obliterates you, so that you come to faith in Christ. He says this in verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. In that verse, how many options does Paul provide humanity there? How many options? Two. So God's word, Paul is writing here, says there's, there's two options. You are either a slave to sin which leads to death or you are a slave of obedience which leads to righteousness. Is there a third option? Is there any middle ground here? No, there's not. There's no independent party. There's no tea party. There's no green party. You are either or in Paul's mind. And Paul, again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you are either or in God's economy. There is no opportunity to say, well, God's okay with me because I'm not so prideful to claim that I have the corner on truth and that I know that Christianity is right. If that's your mindset, God would look at you and say that you are an enemy of God. There's no such thing as saying, well, I'm just neutral right now and I'm just gonna coast right now because I don't really need to take this stuff seriously. After all, I'm young right now and I've still got my life in front of me. I'll figure this stuff out later. If that's your mindset, you are living your life as an open, rebellious enemy of God with your fist thrown in his face. This is something that grates against our culture, especially today, where our culture says, you can be both and. You can be either or. It doesn't really matter what you want to be. Why don't you be this this day and then that the next day? Just change your mind. Whatever you want to be, you be what you want to be. But Paul is saying, no, you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to obedience, a slave to righteousness. And it's not just this passage either. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 25. He's looking to the future and he's saying in, in Matthew chapter 25 that eventually there's going to be a judgment day that's going to come and God is going to separate. And he uses the illustration for us of sheep and goats. 
And he says on that day that he will divide the sheep from the goats. He will separate them, one on his left hand and one on his right hand. And he will look at the one, the goats, and he will say, depart from me into eternal destruction. And so Jesus is saying there's two options in this life. You are either with me or you are against me. Paul uses a different analogy in Ephesians chapter two. He says you're either dead in your trespasses and sins, objects of the wrath of God, following the prince of the power of this air, or you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead or alive, two options. Maybe you think, well, that's just the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? How about Joshua crossing into the promised land? Joshua chapter 24. He's got all of Israel together and he says, you need to decide today. Today, decide for yourselves. Are you with God or are you against God? Are you for him or are you opposed to him? Again, you're either a slave of sin, which leads to death, or a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There is no neutral. And that's our first point tonight. Understand that there is no neutral with God. There's no third option. Some of you are in this room are, are coffee elitists, right? And so if I say the word Starbucks to you, you just cringe. I mean, it, it might as well be McDonald's coffee. Others of you are like Starbucks enthusiasts and loyalists, and you work at Starbucks, and Starbucks is the greatest thing on earth. And usually there's those two camps that you fall into there. You either love it or you hate it. There's one of two options that exists. And when we think about Christianity and the Lord, there, there is no like, yeah, it, it's okay, I could take or leave it. It's one or the other. And this points back to the importance of us being regenerated, being made new, being born again by God, because without that, our condition is not very great. Listen to the way that the scriptures describe us apart from Christ. Psalm 143, verse two. No one living is righteous before God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 2 Chronicles 6.36, there's no one who does not sin. Isaiah 53.6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.11, no one seeks for God. Romans 3.12, everyone is turned aside. No one does good, not even one. This is who we are without Christ. See, this is why there's no neutral ground. Because you are born this way. You are born an enemy of God, in need of salvation, in need of having your life turned around. And so the, the, the problem is, is we take this concept of being a good person and we want to define it in our pride and in our self-autonomy. We want to be the, the rulers of our lives and we don't want a God who's going to define good for us and tell us that we don't measure up to that. So we're going to reject that God because of our arrogance and we're going to say that we're going to define good instead of him. And what we do is we lower the bar. And our definition of good becomes what we can attain to so that we can make ourselves feel good, so that we can sleep at night and not worry about our conscience and not worry about our guilt, knowing that we are doing things that are wrong and that are sinful and that are evil. 
But because we've eliminated God from the equation, we think we're okay because we've readjusted our definition for good so that we can hit it, that we can attain it. But the problem is you can do that your whole life and in the end, you're gonna stand before a holy God who says this is the standard of good. And where are you at with it? I mean, even take somebody like Mother Teresa, right? You don't think that Mother Teresa had a moment of a prideful thought cross her mind from time to time? You don't think that Mother Teresa ever lost her patience or entertained a sinful thought against another person or ever coveted something? So even the pinnacle that we throw up there, like Mother Teresa, right? If, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that she was just a, a person, just a human who had sins like all the rest of us do. And so even if your standard of good is her, she still had her failures, her faults, her sins, and she needed those to be atoned for, those to be taken care of for her. See, the nicest unbeliever you know is still a slave to his or her sin. There is no neutrality. Even the good things they do, they're doing them for themselves or they're doing them for the good of another, but they're not doing them to glorify God. And this is a hard concept to wrap our minds around, but this is why Paul's reiterating this. After what we looked at last week and said, look, you're either gonna present your bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness or you're gonna present yourselves to God as an instrument of righteousness. He's reiterating for us and, and driving it home for us that there is no middle ground. Just this past weekend, two mass shootings. El Paso, 20 dead. Ohio, another nine. None of them went to the mall or went to that bar thinking that that was the end of their life. And a lot of them were at your age or younger. And so to say, I don't care about this, this is pointless, I'm just here because I need to be here or because my mom and dad want me to be here, but just this is boring me. I, I, honestly, I'd, I'd rather you not show up if you're gonna just sit here and mock. Because what we're dealing with is eternity, the reality and the difference between heaven and hell. And there is no second chance. And your life could be gone tonight. If you think you're in that neutral position when it comes to the Lord, the creator of the known universe, you're not. You're in open rebellion to God if you're not a follower of Christ. So my prayer, my, my heart, my desire is that tonight you decide to change that by repenting from your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Again, like I said, regeneration, that being born again is the key to all this. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 17 and 18. He says, but, he says, look, there's two options, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So Paul's saying there's hope here. You're in that position of you're saying, man, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And Paul's saying, I get that, but there's hope for you. And for you who are followers of Jesus, he's saying rejoice in that. Give thanks to God for that because God is the one who's done that for you. You become obedient from the heart, he says. It's, it's that inward posture of obedience to God. 
Again, we have to, to overcome our, our cultural context because our culture says you can choose what you want to be and who you want to be and what you want your identity to be, to be from day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour. But that's not reality when it comes to God. See, it takes an act of God to transform your life and to press in on you and to say that you need to be moved from a, a slave of sin to become a slave of God. And he's saying that the offer is there, that the hope is there. You become obedient from the heart to what? To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That standard of teaching is the gospel. That you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ who lived and died for you, who rose again from the dead, who paid the penalty for your sins that you had been enslaved to. Christ who paid the penalty for that infinite chasm that existed between you and God that you could not overcome. And he's offering that and holding it out to you and saying, if you will repent and believe in this, believe in the gospel, you will be forgiven. And so Paul is saying, for those of you who are in Christ, you have become obedient from the heart. You have this internal conviction and commitment to Christ that's fueled by your commitment to the gospel. This is the only type of devotion that's going to transform us that's going to change us. It's going to take us from being openly hostile to God and bring us into being reconciled to God. Bring us into being God's child, God's son or God's daughter. And we can't will ourselves into this to make this change. It has to begin with that faith and repentance that Sidney was talking about earlier. That right relationship with God. Point number two for you tonight is this. Turn to God for real transformation. Turn to God for real transformation. If you're here tonight with the mindset that you're building up credit for yourself just by showing up at church with God, that this is somehow better than something else that you could be doing, but you're an unbeliever, you're not pulling the wool over God's eyes. He knows where your heart is. He knows what's running through your mind. The Israelites thought that they could appease God by external devotion to him, by just going through the motions. And in the book of Micah, God calls them out on this. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6, God says, What shall I come with before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings or maybe with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my sin or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, what Israel was doing is they were saying, what do I need to offer to just be good with God so that I can go about the rest of my life and just get on with what I want to do? How can I keep being in open rebellion to God and yet not have God be angry with me is what the Israelites were thinking. And they're ratcheting up what they're saying here. What, what should I bring before him? Should I bring an offering? Maybe I should bring a, a calf, a, a, a young cow, a year old, and offer that. Man, you know what? Maybe if I brought 10,000s of, of rams with me or 10,000s of, of rivers of oil, something that would have been immensely costly to them during that time, would that be enough? Would God then accept me? And then they ratchet up even further and they're like, you know what? Maybe even if I devoted my, my firstborn child, which was a practice of the worship of a God called Molech, 
that they would bring an infant, they would place this infant in a brass statue that had been heated over a fire and the infant would burn alive in the hands of the statue. And so the Israelites were thinking, well, maybe if I even do something like that, that will prove that I'm devoted to God and then God will get off my back. And some of you are here tonight thinking, well, maybe if I show up at the bridge, God will be pleased with that and he'll get off my back. But see, that doesn't fool him. Empty worship, empty words, empty devotion is worthless in the eyes of God. God says what he wants in verse 8 of Micah chapter 6. He's told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Do you see the internal there? He doesn't want your external devotion if it's devoid of internal commitment. If you want change, if you want to have your life transformed, you have to turn to God first by repenting of your sins and trusting Christ as your Savior. That inward devotion and commitment to him, that's where it has to begin. Or maybe you're a believer here tonight and you've been struggling with sin and battling sin and you're going, I want transformation. You have to turn inwardly to God first. Psalm 51, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, is repenting openly before the Lord. He's praying that God would transform him, that God would make him white as snow, that he would purge him, that he would cleanse him, that he would give him a, a new heart. That total inward transformation that he's asking for there. Y'all, this is something that, that sheer willpower can't do. To say, well, I'm gonna just, I'll just stop doing this thing and I'll be okay. Distracting yourself won't do it. Say, well, I'm just not gonna think about these things anymore. Returning to the sins over and over again to just dull your senses. That's not going to help either. We've talked about that. We talked about that last week with that cycle that you get into of just going for hit to hit to hit to hit to try to just dull yourself into oblivion so that you don't feel the reality of the, the void that you have in your life of hopelessness and despair. Finding new sins won't help you. And ignoring God's not going to do it either. And look, I, I want to talk to you if, if you're here tonight and you're saying, I, I just don't want anything to do with God. I get that you may not like the Christians that you've experienced in your life, but I want to just plead with you, don't throw God out because you don't like some of his followers. If you're here tonight and being like, man, Christians are hypocrites, I'm going to be the first in line to look at you and say, yeah. Yeah, we are sinful. We do things that we preach against, hopefully not intentionally, hopefully not persistently. But if you're looking at us and going, well, as soon as you screw up, then I'm going to point the finger and go, see, this is why I don't want anything to do with God. You're pointing the finger at somebody who's imperfect, who's fallen, who's broken, who's a sinner. And you're throwing out the holy and just and perfect and righteous and loving and kind and merciful and compassionate God of this universe because of something that I've done? Don't do that. No matter where you turn, you're going to find people who let you down and disappoint you. Again, the solution is internal. In the book of Ezekiel, which I know we don't spend a lot of time in, but Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel describes this transformation that God performs in our lives. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 there it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you notice that God, what he says there in Ezekiel 36 is he doesn't say to you, hey, if you clean yourself up first, then I'm gonna do all these things. No, he says, I'm gonna clean you, I, I, I will cleanse you. Come to me in faith and repentance and I will cleanse you. I will remove your idols from your life. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, this is the offer that's before you tonight. If you're not a follower of Christ, tonight I would say, repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Stop pointing the finger at God because we fall short of your expectations for us. You're not accountable for my sin. I'm not accountable for your sin. You're accountable before God for your own sin. And the solution to that, the only solution to that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or if you're a Christian tonight, losing a battle with sin, God is here to forgive you, to, to embrace you, that you can turn back to him in repentance and experience forgiveness, and he will embrace you again, and he will restore you again. If you want to see this change, this transformation, whether it's total transformation through salvation or through seeing less of sin and more of holiness in your life, the path is through turning to, to God in that. Paul continues in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, he's saying I'm using human analogies with this analogy of slavery. And, and just as a caveat, when you hear slavery, don't, don't think of Civil War era American slavery. This is not what we're talking about. This is a, a relationship of a bond servant who has submitted himself to another person. Okay, this is not abuse. This is not beatings. This is not any of those things. This is a, a, a more of an economic relationship than anything else at this time. But Paul's saying, look, I'm speaking in human terms, using this analogy because of your natural limitations. I'm trying to help you understand something that is so big that, that if we were to use the, the heavenly realities of what takes place when we're saved, we wouldn't be able to wrap our minds around it. And he says, for just as you once presented your members to slaves, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Just as you once were a slave to sin, now present yourselves and your members to righteousness as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. The trade deadline in baseball just passed. So a, a player on one team would have been traded possibly to another team, gone to play for another team, wear a different uniform, play in a different city. And that guy's job is still the same. He's to play the game. He's to play the game of baseball, right? But now he has a new allegiance, now, just as he once played for this team over here, now he has to play for his new team over here. There's a transfer of loyalty, a transfer of devotion, a transfer of allegiance. And Paul's saying that's what takes place at salvation. Just as you once were devoted to and loyal to sin, so now be devoted to and loyal to righteousness in your life. This isn't going to happen unless you see the value 
in righteousness. Unless you're done just facing the, the, the void of your sin that, that's there time and time again. Paul says and, and describes it as being a slave to sin, a slave to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness, a slave to sin, which leads to more sin. Sin multiplies sin. And the reason is, is because sin can't satisfy you. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that. It doesn't satisfy you. There's a temporal pleasure that you get out of it. But then that wears off. And then you're looking for, how can I escape the reality of my despair and my hopelessness right now? I don't like who I am without these sins that I have in my life. I don't like the way I think without being high on this sin that I'm pursuing all this time. I don't like what I think about when I'm not distracting myself with sinful pleasures. And so what you do in response is you say, well, let me get more sin. And you pursue more and more and more and more and more till really your times of soberness and reality are you just sitting there thinking about that next time that you can escape the despair and the depression and the, the horror that is your existence to try to get more sin so that you can just forget about everything. And Paul's saying, you don't have to do that. Leave that behind and embrace Christ. See that Jesus is better than your sin because the satisfaction that you will find in being a follower of Christ will last, it will endure. You will wake up in the morning not thinking of how lousy your existence is, but wake up in the morning going, wow, that's amazing that I get to be a follower of Christ. No matter what happens to me today, I am secure in Christ that you can think about the reality that if you wake up today and today is your last day on earth, that what awaits for you is a reality in the presence of God where he says that his right hand are pleasures forevermore and in his presence is fullness of joy, something that sin can never offer you here on earth. Jesus is better. He's better than the drugs because there's no crash or come down from Christ. He's better than pornography because he's created beauty and designed sex to be enjoyed within a marriage so that your desires are satisfied in a way that doesn't leave you feeling disgusting and filthy afterwards. He's better than your abusive relationship because he's the perfect demonstration of love and literally dying for you to save you. He's better than materialism because satisfaction in him lasts. There's never gonna be a Jesus 2.0 He's better than your ambition because being his follower is the greatest thing that any of us could have an answer to. Anything that any of us could ever achieve. He's better than your eating disorders because he's the one who created you and made you in his image and accepts you without some superficial physical standard of what beauty should be and what you should look like. He's better than your GPA because all of us as his followers are called to be humble learners at his feet. Christ is better, far better than chasing after sin to satisfy when you know, you know it won't. It hasn't yet or else you wouldn't be here tonight. There's immense value in godliness and becoming a slave to sanctification, which is holiness. Becoming a slave to righteousness, which leads to more and more and more holiness in your life. 
the joys that are there. You won't ever crash off Jesus. You won't hate yourself. You won't hate other people. You won't have the regrets that you have now. You won't have the shame that you feel now, the embarrassment that you feel now. You won't feel less or worse than other people in Christ. You won't be calloused towards people. You won't wake up without hope. You won't go to bed without a reason to wake up the next day. Instead, you'll be more consistently joyful. You'll be more stable emotionally, mentally, physically. You'll think more clearly. You'll smile more. You'll have more confidence with people. You will love others more. You will serve more. You will sleep better. You will go to sleep with hope for what tomorrow holds. You'll wake up with confidence that the Lord is going to be with you this day. You're going to have deeper friendships, friendships that are actually genuine with people that actually really do care about you. You're going to find that people want to be around you. You're going to face trials with hope and knowledge that the day will come when there's never going to be any more trials for you to face. And you will live with a loose grip on this world as you anchor yourself to your eager expectation for one that's coming that's far, far better than this world. This is why it's worth it to turn from Christ or to turn to Christ from sin. This is why. Because Jesus is so much better than your sins in your life. That's why I would say, don't judge Christ based on me. Don't judge Christ based on somebody else in this room. Judge Christ based on what you read in this book. You've got to land somewhere. Paul says there's one of two options there. You either land with Christ or you land against him. You have to land somewhere. And guys, my desire for every single one of you is to land with Christ. My desire is that tonight you know you are with Christ before you leave here. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Today. Repent from your sins. Put your faith in Christ today. What is it that's holding you back? What is it that's keeping you? You can point at me and say, because I don't like you. Okay, fine. I didn't write the gospel. I didn't write the Bible. You can point at some other believer in this room and say, well, I know what they're really like outside of this room. Okay, fine, but they didn't write the gospel. They didn't write the Bible. They didn't create the world. God did. And he's given you his word and he's put so clearly in his word what the gospel is and what the reality is that you are either with him or against him. I didn't ever give you the third point. It's choose Christ and break the cycle. There, there's your third point. I just looked up and saw it just hovering back there. But guys, let me just beg you tonight to come to Christ if you haven't. And if you have tonight, to, to refocus on pursuing Christ and pursuing righteousness in him and to leave behind the trinkets and the, the pleasures and the joys of this world behind and go, I see that they don't satisfy Christ does. One of two options. There's no neutral. Turn to Christ tonight. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the stark reality that there are two ways and two ways only.
We are either with you or against you. God, truthfully, I, I beg you for the lives of every single person in this room that they would all be with you. That they would all be with you before the end of the, the night tonight. Lord, that they would take this seriously. That they would examine what are their real and genuine and true objections to coming to Christ if they still have any. And are they more displeased with a Christian or are they more displeased with Christ? My guess is they're more displeased with a Christian. Lord, show them how much better that you are. Show them how much better satisfaction in you is. How sweet it is to follow you, to be your believer and to know confidently that this world cannot touch that. To know confidently that if we lose everything in this world, including even our own very lives, God, that we are still okay because we are yours. God, do great things. Work powerfully tonight, even through these small groups. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.